and welcome to the Bunker Global, where we tell you what you need to know about news and politics from around the world. It's a complex world out there, so every Friday we're here to make it feel a little easier to comprehend. On this edition, the G20 family get together, but will it be a happy gathering or will they all fall out? Why is Tucker Carlson obsessed with Hungary and is Dubai the new Las Vegas? I'm Chris Jones, and joining me to discuss the mad world we live in is Associate Professor in Politics and International Relations at UCL, and now a dual national citizen of the UK. It's Julie Norman. Thanks for joining us, Julie. First of all, how are you? I'm very well. Happy to be here. And how does it feel to be officially one of us. Well, I should ask you guys what you think about having me here. Is this like, there goes the neighborhood moment? Oh, it's great. Or, like, all the happy merrier. days are here again. You know, bring <laughs> over the happy boats. vibes because we're all way too depressed as it is in Britain. I know, so. I know. That's what I'm hearing. So I came for the biscuits. What can I say? Well, why wouldn't you? Well, we're glad to have you anyway. <laughs> should we you. get on with a bit of world news? Yeah. Fantastic. So let's start with the G20 summit, which is coming up this weekend. Uh, the theme this year, yes, there's a theme, and it's it's quite frankly a banger. It's uh, one earth, one family, one future. And as it turns out, the family has fallen out before it's even started. India, the host, are squabbling amongst themselves, and Biden's sad because his older annoying brother that he never sees, Xi Jinping, isn't going to be there. Uh, so is this summit doomed before it's even started? And can anything be agreed upon from this one? Julie, let's start with the most obvious question. What are we hoping will come from this summit? I would say with most summits like this, it's probably best to lower expectations. And yep. especially when like the G20. I mean, this is a group of the 20 most re- uh, richest countries in the world, but they don't tend to really do that much when they meet. I would say when they have the most relevance is usually times of crisis. So after the 2008-2009 financial crisis coming out of COVID, that's really when we saw the G20 doing anything substantial. Um, I think for this one, the most we can probably hope is some common ground on issues like food security, debt relief, um, you know, reforms that do matter for much of the world, but nothing that's going to be earth shattering or groundbreaking. And you mentioned food security there, and that is something that is 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 really a massive topic at the minute, especially when you consider um, what's going on in, in Ukraine and uh, in, in the Black Sea there in terms of uh, exports being able to get out. Uh, how important is that going to be in terms of conversation for, for this summit? Yeah, I think Ukraine will be interesting to see how much the summit engages with that or not. So obviously, Putin mm. is not going to be there. There's a lot of different perspectives on the Ukraine uh, war and conflict between the G20 uh, countries. And so I think there's some who will be wanting to get some kind of declaration about Ukraine into the the final um, leader's declaration. But it's going to be tricky. You have a lot of different countries, a lot of different stances on that. But I do think, as you said, issues like food security that link to Ukraine is where the G20 usually can come together and at least say something aspirational. The action behind it, I think, is often a little bit, uh, uh, we have to wait and see on that sometimes. And you said, uh, I think you said the the phrase come together there, which is something really, really interesting to to pick upon when it comes to this G20 summit. And going back to that that theme, it really does invoke a sense of hope. And as you say, uh, togetherness. At the time we are currently at in terms of world togetherness and and world policy, um, do you see any way that this summit can really help to bring not just the countries in the group, but around the world together? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I'm somewhat of a pragmatist, I guess, when it comes to summits like this. It's like, 
Yes, it's a lot of photo ops and things like that, and not a lot often gets done. But the alternative of not having them is probably worse. Like, I think ultimately it is good to have a forum where countries can meet. This is often where really important one-to-one conversations that do have real policy implications can happen. And it's really, to me, just it is important that there are conversations about what are, quote-unquote, global north countries doing to ensure the global south is not left behind. And the G20 at least gives gives some lip service to that and occasionally some action to... Yeah. And I read something interesting in the the IMF blog uh, that said that essentially India is uniquely placed to bring countries together at this this summit. Uh, do you agree with that? As, especially uh, when you consider uh, that there is quite a lot of conflicts in their own country. Yeah. I mean, India certainly wants to make it look this way. And Modi in particular is definitely mm. branding this as the India summit. Well, actually using other terminology sometimes. But he, he was really trying to make this about India, showing that India is a leading state, a leading power, all these these kinds of things. In reality, the G20 host country just rotates every year. So it's it's somewhat uh, random that it's India. But with that said, India is very interesting place right now. I mean, it's a very strong middle power. It just surpassed China in terms of population, just had the big moon landing, is yeah. expecting, I think, 7% like economic growth. And is interesting, a country that can swing both ways. On the one hand, the US is very tight with India part of the Quad. At the same time, India is part of BRICS, um, has relationships with Russia and China. So they're geographically, and I would say politically, very interestingly placed. But as you noted, a lot of internal problems, um, a lot of problems with Modi's own party, their treatment of um, Muslims in particular, as well as just still very strong inequality within the country. What do you think Narendra Modi wants to get out of this Yeah, I mean, I think he wants to show that India is a leading state on the world stage now, that they have leverage with a lot of different actors and can not only bridge, quote unquote, east and west, but also north and south. Uh, They're in the club, so to speak, with the G20, with Europe, with the US, but they also have a lot of leverage, I would say, with, you know, emerging powers from, uh, from Africa, from Latin America, from Asia as well. And so I think Modi is really trying to leverage this as what can India do to put themselves as the go-to state for a lot of different actors in the coming years. And you mentioned uh, the US a moment ago, and I want to touch on that because uh, there's been a lot of talk around uh, their relationship with China. When I say a lot of talk, there's been a massive amount of conversation around. Just a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. Um, How significant is it that Xi Jinping isn't going to be there to have conversations with the likes of Narendra Modi and and Biden, because China isn't a member of of, of the G20, but it it should be there at this massive summit, shouldn't it? The fact that she is not planning to attend is, I would say, notable. Um, There were many who I think were hoping for those bilateral conversations, whether it was Biden or Sunak. Certainly the U.S. has been kind of parading different diplomats through Beijing over the course of the summer to hopefully lead up to a Biden-Xi meeting. And I do think that'll happen. Happen. They'll have some other opportunities probably later this fall at other summits for, for that. Um, but in the meantime, yeah, I mean, not having Xi in the room, not having Putin in the room, um, that does kind of limit what's going to come out of the G20 because yeah. those two actors are just so crucial right now on the world stage. Yeah, and I think it was in the U.S.'s last defense report that it essentially labeled China as the greatest uh, threat to global security. You would have thought that these two sides would want to at least talk to each other about uh, this issue because they both have conflicting views over how they see each other, don't they? Definitely. And I would say the U.S., um, they, they usually try and use the word challenge, I think, because it's yes. a little bit nicer. Um, and and I do think they are struggling right now between what they do see are real 
military security threats that they're trying to balance against in the Pacific with very real um, integrated economies that just cannot be, you know, quote unquote, decoupled or delinked. And so you kind of have this two uh, two hands doing two different things with the policy right now and trying to find that middle ground. But you're right. In terms of avoiding a potential conflict, these meetings, communication, that is key. And that's one reason why the U.S. has been trying to push for these diplomatic steps. And do you think that, that this relationship between the U.S. and China will be a, a massive kind of topic of conversation at this summit. You know, you you look at Taiwan, for example, and, and all of the complications around that. Tensions are, are really on a knife edge and have been for quite quite a while. Is that the type of thing that the G20 should be coming together and talking about? I would say there's probably a lot of opinions on that, the G20. Yeah. I doubt it'll be the forefront of conversation only because it's not a security body. It's not a military body. It's not even really a political body. It's really economic. And so that's usually where the focus tends to be because that's where they can actually get to some kind of consensus. But definitely a lot of strong opinions, especially from countries who feel like they're trying to be forced to choose between like two bickering parents. And I think the U.S. is trying to avoid that dynamic. But um, but many countries feel caught in the middle nonetheless. Yeah, lots of opinions is is, is what you you kind (laughs) of said there about the G20. And that's very true. Do you think that's that's a main reason as to why they can't agree upon anything pretty much when it comes to these summits? Yeah, I mean, that is true. And you just have, I mean, Countries from all different regions with all different kinds of interests trying to come together each year and say something that they all agree on Mm. is kind of a big challenge. And so I do think that's one reason why the declarations tend to be very watered down, tend to be very ambiguous, because that's what you need to get the consensus. Again, the alternative of like not having these countries meet and not at least having some goals, objectives for global economy, I think is, um, you know, is probably less desirable. So I'm, I'm fine, but I think we should just temper our expectations when they come together like this. Best case scenario, what comes out of this summit? Best case, I think a leader's declaration, which they have issued every year since 1999, if they can't agree this time, it'd be the first time that they don't. Um, So I think a declaration that does at least articulate some key aims for, again, things we mentioned, food security, debt relief, that are important issues right now for many parts of the world, and ideally some kind of statement around Ukraine. They did get a statement in last year on Bali. I think it's questionable if they'll get one in this year, but that I think will be the best uh, best case scenario. Well, let's hope they can and agree at least something. Indeed. Next on Bunker Global, Tucker Carlson's been in Hungary again, where he met his adoring fans, also known as the Fidesz. If you didn't know, that's Hungary's right-wing ruling party, headed by friend of Vladimir Putin, Viktor Orban. Tucker sat down for an exclusive one-on-one interview with Orban that the Hungarian government definitely didn't pay for. It's his second meeting with a highly questionable politician in as many weeks. And to figure out why Carlson has such a strange obsession with Hungary and why this interview matters or doesn't, I spoke to Jolt Kerner, journalist for 24.hu. He joined me from Budapest and I started by asking him what he made of the interview. Well, it wasn't surprising as much for Hungarian audiences because um, it's kind of expected. Viktor Orban rarely does interviews with independent media in Hungary, and it's not by chance, it's by design. He tries to give interviews in a situation where he can control the narrative. But in recent years, there has been a trend emerging where he doesn't even give interviews to pro-government media, and it seems like it's just an opinion, but it seems like he's 
kind of bored of it. They just transmit the messages, uh, but rarely sits down for a longer term interview. But there is another seemingly obvious trend in Hungarian politics that Viktor Orban wants to be a global player. And for a politician, it's understandable. He has no real opposition in Hungary. He has no real challenge to challenge him. So he looks for a bigger stage. And that's why he likes to sit down for deeper conversations and bigger interviews with uh, more famous or more Western journalists. And um, it's hard to say that anybody would be more famous in the English language world as a, as a, as a right-wing interviewer than Tucker Carlson. So it, uh, it kind of gives him everything he wants about this. He seems like a bigger player. He sits down with the guy who interviewed Trump just a few weeks before him. And he seems like a global player in politics. Yeah, and you talk about controlling the narrative there. I remember when I was in Budapest and uh, and it was around the election time and uh, Orban's party, the Fidesz, were using a tactic of of putting up posters around the city of um, the opposition as Dr. Evil and Mini-Me. So he's really no uh, stranger to using, as you say, narrative controlling tactics. But th- this really wasn't a, a chance interview, was it? Tucker Carlson has a relationship with Hungary and he's, he's, he's been there before. It's a pretty strange relationship. What, what what do you make of it? Tucker seems to have a really good relationship with Hungary, but I don't think it's just Tucker. So there has been uh, a reach out of, of Hungary to figures in the new right in the United States. From the alt-right to the word of Trump, there has been several figures who came here to Hungary. And the focal point of that is... Uh, MCC, the institution that they built up to serve as a as a political ideological center, right? Which distributes actually opinions quite different from Viktor Orbán's sometimes, but uh, not usually. And they invite these people who are already famous to a degree or becoming famous in the United States to have grants and to live and study in Hungary, write books. Yeah. Uh, for quite good salaries, actually. So they give these people who are not very well-known Ivy League category salaries to live in Budapest, which is like a very beautiful city, and it's very comfortable to live here on a foreign-like salary. And they like the city. So it's not just Tucker. They they all, Chris Rufo, have, have been here for a while. There are people who permanently live here as a, English counter-intelligentsia to the prevailing liberal uh, democratic narrative of the West, what they what they think about is. Um, and it's really hard to see what Tucker likes about Budapest. It's hard, hard to understand what he gets out of this. Uh, but I would guess mainly views. Because if I just looked at Tucker's Twitter or X page uh, just a few moments ago, and his interview with Viktor Orban did quite well. We can only see the reach, how many people the post reached, and it was above 120 million people. And the only recent interview he did that did better than this was the interview with Trump that did three times as much as this. But people in the sphere where people actually listen to Tucker are interested in what Orban has to say, and that's because they have been building him as a global character that can teach a message to kind of the new right about what's working, what do you have to do, what's important, how to do things. 
Uh, going back to what was said in that interview um, and relating to gas, uh, both had some pretty controversial views on the Nord Stream pipeline and, and how that was uh, sabotaged and who did it. Orban also brought up the, the, the Southern Corridor, which I mentioned provides uh, gas from Russia to Hungary. And he said that if, if anything were to happen to, to that corridor, that he would consider that a, a, an act of war and there would be immediate repercussions. Is that an empty threat? It's hard to know, actually, whether a prime minister of Hungary is strong enough to issue a threat like that. Um, I think it would have consequences depending on whom the government thinks has attacked the pipeline. Uh, I'm not sure about the plans, actually, if there is any plans to attack or any chance to attack the pipeline. There would be certainly consequences about it, maybe in sanctions, maybe in policy regarding to Ukraine. I found it really interesting that we are officially allies with the United States. And when Tucker Carlson says that it's obvious that the United States blown up the pipeline, which is not at all obvious based on facts or any investigation, Viktor Orban did not say that it's, we don't know yet. So we don't know what, who who did that. And, And it's kind of a play. It's a usual play in Hungarian politics when you play with people's preconceptions about the United States, and there are many in, in basically in the pro-government bunch, but in all of Hungary, about how the U.S. can do basically anything it wants. And I believe that there is an overwhelming majority of people in Hungary who, who can certainly believe that the U.S. blown up the pipelines, and Viktor Orban did not dispute that. But it was a very interesting conversation. Yeah, and just to, to uh, wrap up this conversation, you mentioned it a little bit at the start about Orban wanting to uh, promote himself more uh, in terms of being a, a global player. Do you think this interview does anything towards pushing him higher up in the ranks, as it were? Do you think it uh, that world leaders, that countries, that people all over the world will see that he sat down with uh, Tucker, uh, see this interview uh, and take him a bit more seriously? Do you think that's what he hopes and do you think that's what might happen? I don't think that this interview was meant for sitting prime ministers or leaders of countries. What I've seen is that several people, right-wing intelligentsia, political writers on the right, and even on the far left, share this post with the comment that you should just listen to the first part because this is the first time that they heard that, guys, Russia might be winning this war. And also the other thing is family policy. He had three very clear messages in that interview. One was that Trump should come back. The other is that Russia might win. And the third one is that Hungary is pro-family and birth rates are the biggest thing that you can care about right now. And he wanted to to get those messages across. And he wanted to get those messages across to the right-wing intelligentsia who write about politics, who write articles, and who talk about these issues on podcasts and stuff like this. So they might find them interesting, so they might invite people from Hungary over to their podcast, and uh, they can build an image of Hungary as a pragmatic, realist state that cares about Hungarians and cares about Hungarian families. Joe uh, Kosonov. Jolt Kerner there and if you want to listen to that full conversation we're releasing it on Saturday so keep your eyes peeled for that Julie back to you now Um, from a rest of the world perspective 
what did you make of, of this interview and what was said in it? Because there were some pretty strange moments, weren't there? Yeah, there were. I mean, there was a lot that was said, obviously, about Ukraine, about uh, the possibility for a, a victory, about Donald Trump, I mean, about Hungary yeah. itself. So I would say... You know, a lot of a lot of big moments, but also nothing really that new from either of these actors. I mean, Tucker Carlson, he has had this um, relatively same position on Ukraine since the beginning of the war. Um, Orban also has been kind of the one to convince, so to speak, in NATO and the EU on, on Ukraine. And so I feel like, to me, it was two of them who are um, both kind of famous for being contrarian, for um, pushing back at the consensus of the elite and whatnot, and and kind of uh, twisting the knife on this. So I, I would say that to one degree. At the same time, I think just because it's Tucker and Orban, whatever one's opinions of them are, it is important to somewhat engage with the content of what they're actually saying, too, because I think some points raised like, well, when will there be a negotiated settlement? Is it OK to talk about that? Those are somewhat fair points to raise. And I think engaging with the content is, is important with interviews like this. Let's talk Trump. I'm sure we're both sick of talking about Trump, <laughs> but it keeps coming up. So we have to talk about uh, it. It'll keep coming up, too. Yeah, and it will keep coming up. Um <laughs> Orban essentially, well, he didn't essentially, he definitely did say that Trump needs to come back if we, uh, to ever avoid a World War III scenario uh, involving Russia and Ukraine and the conflict that's going on there. What did you make of that statement? Yeah, I mean, this is, again, uh, typical to me, Orban... um, support for Trump. Obviously, Tucker knew that he would say this. Um, This has been ongoing between the two of them, this kind of strongman sort of solidarity, if you will. Um, And I... Again, with that said, I think many people do think foreign policy would look a lot different under Trump. I agree with that. I disagree that it would necessarily be better. Um, I think one thing with Trump is just that his policies have been very unpredictable. And anyone Mm. who thinks that they know what he would be doing with Ukraine or with China or anything else, like... He, he has been very inconsistent, unpredictable with his policies. And uh, I definitely wouldn't count on him to be resolving these issues uh, the first day in office. And what does this do for the for the GOP, but also for, for those on the, on, on the right in, in America? This uh, Hearing this world leader call for the return of Trump, does that just embolden them a bit more? Yeah, I mean... If that's a, possible. <laughs> I would say it definitely gives, you know, even more support to him. Among Trump's supporters, though, I don't think... I guess I would say Trump didn't really need the bump, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, he's already polling, like, well above 50% in primaries. He's just so far ahead of his competitors that the fact that Orban is endorsing him, like, some in MAGA may notice and clap a little bit, but I don't think that's going to make or break anyone really voting for Trump. I think those who are, are supporting him are were in long before this interview. And what does this do for, for, for Tucker to see him interviewing uh, people like Viktor Orban on, on, on such a, a big stage? And, you know, there are allegedly around about 100 million people who have potentially seen this interview. Um, what does this do for him? What What's in it for him? Yeah, it's interesting because I was trying to look at the viewership for this, too, because as many listeners probably know, Tucker was let go by Fox News about yeah. six months ago, is trying to kind of rebuild his brand on, um, on X, formerly Twitter. Um, and I... I'm not sure how much traction this one is getting compared to his old Fox stuff. Like, apparently it did have a lot of views, but when you actually look for coverage of it, obviously the main TV network is Fox that usually shares you know, these kinds of, of interviews, and they're they're not really covering this interview that yeah. much. And so I'm not sure how much it's getting out to um, to people who are not like kind of looking for it. And, uh, and it's a little bit different media landscape for Tucker to navigate. But he, he has a lot of supporters and a lot of fans. I mean, we were, I was talking to Jolt about this. It's hard to work out. It's almost impossible to work out who was the intended audience 
for this interview, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. I mean, in some ways, um, it seemed to play very well in Hungary. And so I think that it seemed to have like a domestic audience, but also in the in the U.S. too. Um, where I'm, I'm not sure exactly who, who Tucker felt he needed to convince on some of these points yeah. either. Like, uh, again, most of MAGA is already with him on most of these things, um, and I don't think he's going to convince many others. But um, it seemed to me like, again, more of a push to rebuild his brand at a time when it needed it, and Orban's kind of a, a go-to uh, big man that he could get for a primetime kind of interview. And what about uh, the rest of the world? We talked about the US a little bit there, but what about you know NATO and the EU? How, how would they have seen this interview, seeing Victor Orban be almost kind of quite critical of them. Yeah, I mean, again, I would say a lot of this, I think, is as NATO, the EU are um, waking up to the fact that Trump has a very good chance of retaking the presidency. A lot of the coverage over the last week or so has been very much about how is, you know, how is the EU NATO going to respond to this? How should they prepare all this? And this interview kind of provides the counter to that, so to speak. So I think I think most um, leaders in the EU and NATO, again, they know where Orban stands on stuff like this. They know that he's been the squeaky wheel throughout everything with Ukraine, and they don't see that changing anytime soon. So this is him having a moment, I think, uh, in the media sun. But um, beyond that, on a policy level, they're used to dealing with him. And they're, I think, getting to work a little bit more on what it might mean if Trump does retake the White House. If you had to sort this interview in, in one or two words... What would you describe it as? Yeah, I mean, I've seen the word sprawling used a lot. And I, <laughs> I do think that's somewhat accurate. Like, it did kind of go all over the place. And it, it was hard to tell a little bit what the takeaway was supposed to be. But I would say, um, again, for me, it was uh, a little bit reinforcing, kind of more of the same from both of these guys who want to make sure their opinion's still being heard. news your favorite history nerds are back yes we at we are history have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops well i have john you mostly went around finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays if i can find them it's a bonus we are ready to tell you all about what we've learned from the revolting french to some revolting women via some brits abroad and a foul-mouthed irishman so download we are history our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast with me john O'Farrell and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, could Dubai become the next Las Vegas? The United Arab Emirates has had a ban on gambling pretty much forever with its laws based on teachings in the Quran. Now, though, a gaming body called the General Commercial Gaming Regulatory Authority has been set up and run by U.S. veterans. Julie, what more do we know about this? Yeah, so this is something that's actually been in the works for, I think, over a year now. And um, it's essentially the UAE setting up very specifically a gaming uh, regulatory body or gaming commission, not using the word gambling, I think, very intentionally. And this, to me, is the UAE really trying to bolster their tourism, their trade, their finance. They're really just trying to to make themselves be a strong market uh, in in the Gulf for, for all different kinds of things. And this is one way just to keep building up Dubai. I mean, to me, it was just kind of a matter of time until you saw that. Like, Dubai just looked like it would be a hotspot for this kind of thing. And, um, you know, certainly not without controversy, but mm. I think Bloomberg is estimating, like, this could bring in, like, $7 billion, um, a year wow. in terms of revenue. So um, it's another way for the UAE to establish themselves to counter Saudi Arabia, in particular in the region, and and put themselves out as kind of the go-to draw for both regional as well as Western um, customers, so to speak. Talking of gambling... 
this currently could lead to jail time in in the likes of Dubai. Why are we seeing this kind of gradual move towards legalization, as as it were? Yeah, I think we've seen some of these steps from the UAE already with some traditional Islamic tenets that are kind of um, eased a little bit in Mm. terms of um, alcohol consumption, um, living together without marriage. Like there's been other norms that the UAE has eased on in a way to, again, court foreigners to Dubai in particular, but to the UAE in general. And so this is one more of those easing where I think it's a sense of, Yes, we have this, um, you know, a certain cultural norm, but we're also willing to ease up if there's a strong enough business interest. And that's pretty much what you're seeing. And what about normal people? How do you think they will react to this kind of almost move towards legalization? Because the teachings of, of the Quran and this type of thing are massively ingrained into their society, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, it'll certainly be um, controversial for some. I would point out, I think about 90% of UAE's population are non-citizens. So it automatically draws mm. a lot of internationals who are um, often migrant workers, but also like, you know, more, um, uh, you know, foreign visitors and tourists. And so it's it's a little bit of a tricky question because I think many who would be opposed to this are maybe not making up the the largest voices right now in the UAE for um, for what people see as advantageous for the state. So do you think there's there's a massive opportunity here for it, for it to be successful or do you think it will essentially just die on its ass? Dubai has tried so many different things and they just keep like throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks yeah. and like these different um, attractions and whatnot. But this is one that I do think, again, they've been working towards for a while. They have pretty strong US credentials coming in to build up this body. And I do think a place like Dubai, there would be an appetite for casinos, gaming, whatever you want to call it. And uh, and I can see them having a pretty good run with it if they want to go for it. So do you think we could potentially see a load of drunk Brits on stag <laughs> in Dubai anytime soon? Oh my gosh, they might go Amsterdam style and ban the Brits. I don't know, but um, <laughs> or discourage the Brits. But um, but yeah, I mean, Dubai is already such a hub for all kinds of things that this will just be one more, um, you know, one more part of the draw. Well, I don't think I'll be going there anytime soon, <laughs> but I'm sure many people will. And that's the end of this edition of the Bunker Global. Julie, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Uh, Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, we release others just like this every Friday. Not only is there a whole library of a thousand other episodes to choose from already, there's also a new bunker every day. And remember, you can get them before everyone else, as well as exciting new merchandise, but only when you back us on Patreon. Sign up, chuck us three quid a month, and we'll keep important conversations like this coming. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Jones, reporting from The Bunker. Bunker Global was written and presented by Chris Jones and Julie Norman. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker Global is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.